Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Mark eleven twenty seven to 33 this morning. And for 11 chapters now in the Gospel of Mark, we have been introduced to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, in the very first chapter, in the very first uh, verse of the first chapter, God has Mark identify the person of Jesus, who he is. It says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then back in chapter 8, uh, verses 27 to 30, Jesus asked his disciples who that people said he was, and, th- and then he asked them who they thought that he was. Peter responded for the rest of the crew that Jesus was the Christ or, or the Messiah. That's what that name means. Christ means Messiah. Jesus was the one promised by God throughout the Old Testament that God would send to be the Savior of our sins. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at the Palm Sunday passage uh, where the great majority of people at that time, they recognized Jesus as such. We also know that their uh, recognition of him as the promised Messiah, Savior, only lasted a few days. Uh, The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they didn't. They didn't identify Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, or the promised Savior. No, from the initiation of Jesus' ministry, honestly, right from the start, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, as they are called this morning in verse 27, uh, they had rejected Jesus uh, as such. Despite the overwhelming evidence, um, the works of Jesus Christ, what have we seen Jesus do in 11 chapters in Mark? Has he healed the sick? A lot. (laughs) right? Um, Has he cast out demons? Yeah. Has he raised the dead? A couple of times. Uh, He's forgiven sin. All, all things that only God could do, despite all that evidence, the works of Christ. These prideful religious leaders, they rejected the person and work of Christ over and over again. And in our passage of scripture here this morning, Jesus has an interaction with these religious leaders Here, and honestly, on through chapter 12, we're going to see nothing but continual conflict between Jesus and them as he gets closer and closer to the cross of Calvary. We're in Passion Week. We've been there for a couple of Sundays. Now, this passage this morning, we're talking about Tuesday of Passion Week. Jesus is crucified Friday, so these events take place on Tuesday of that week. Before we study them, Uh, together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once more. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, your Holy Spirit is here in the life of every single believer. And Father, we we ask that he'd have uh, uninhibited uh, capability to do his work, to do his ministry of of illuminating the truth of your word to us, what you have for us in these few verses here, and then much more than just knowing that he would would call us to respond. And, And then, Lord, I pray that we would yield to him, that we would respond however he's asking us to respond this morning. There might be one here or one watching who does not have the Holy Spirit living in them because they haven't yet trusted you as Savior. Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day when they they finally submit in humility, declare their dependence on you to save them from their sins. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, verses 27 and 28, you see the person and the work of Jesus Christ questioned. Uh, verse 27, there's an investigation into the purification by Jesus. Jesus had purified the temple in the passage immediately prior to this. Uh, and there's an investigation by Jesus and also by the religious leaders. Verse 27 begins by telling us that uh, they come again into Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple. Let's pause there. Who is the they? Well, it's Jesus and his disciples. And they've returned from uh, the village of Bethany to Jerusalem. Back in verses 20 to 26, there was that reaction to Jesus having cursed the fig tree. Do you remember what it represented? The fig tree was a symbol of Israel, at least uh, the twisted religion that Israel had developed. And then verse 27 sa uh, says that Jesus was walking in the temple. I am sure that Jesus was there uh, for daily worship. This was Passover feast week. And so Jesus and his disciples would go to the temple uh, to worship every single day. I'm sure that was his primary reason for being there on that Tuesday. But I also wonder if he wanted to investigate what was going on. Had those who had sold sacrificial animals at a, a jacked-up rate, had they returned? Had uh, those money changers who were charging too high uh, of an interest rate, had they returned? Remember, in verses 15 to 19, Jesus had purified the temple by throwing them out. Were people still using that, that outer court of the Gentiles? Were they still using that as a shortcut to get from one part of Jerusalem to another? Jesus had commanded those who were doing so, to stop that back in verse 18. And it was revealed that this work of Christ, his purifying the temple, it had angered the, the chief priests and scribes so much that it says that they began to plan how to destroy Jesus. And we're not told that Jesus found what he called a, a den of thieves back in there. They hadn't returned and set up shop. But at the end of verse 27, it says, There came to Jesus the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Those priests who had witnessed what Jesus did the day before, uh, they have called in the big guns, the chief priests, chief scribes, and elders. Have you ever had the big guns called in on you? I have. Have you ever, your supervisor at work, maybe, um, maybe you got called into his supervisor. Have you ever been called into the principal's office? I spent a couple of moments there. I'm sure that's a surprise to you. <laughs> no, okay. Why are you testifying about that today? Now, Jesus hadn't, Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. He hadn't, not, not by God's standard. In fact, he had done what should have been done by these religious leaders. Uh, of course, they wouldn't have been against what was going on in the temple as far as all the um, literally robbery and blasphemy and what they were doing there. They, they, they might have even developed it. They at least condoned it. I'm sure it lined their wallets, and their concern wasn't for proper worship. It was for plentiful wealth for themselves. So, so this delegation of the, of the higher-ups, they are sent by uh, those, those scribes to meet Jesus and his disciples. Uh, verse 28 lets us know about the inquiry that's made by the priest. They've got two questions for Jesus. They say unto him, verse 28, by what authority doest thou these things, and who gave thee this authority to do these things? Two questions for Jesus. First of all, by what authority are you doing these things? What you did yesterday, throwing all these money changers out, those who were selling sacrificial animals at ridiculous prices. Who do you think you are, Jesus, coming in here and making changes? 
Most of us don't like change all that much. And Jesus had changed a lot, didn't he, the day before? And Jesus hadn't just rocked the boat. I mean, he had sunk their ship, at least financially. Was this Jesus' first conflict with religious leaders of the day? It wasn't. Way back in Mark 2.10, Mark records the first recorded questioning of Jesus by these leaders. Jesus had just healed that paralyzed man. Do you remember that account? He was in Peter's mother-in-law's house teaching and healing, and people couldn't get to him, and some, one man, he was on a stretcher, and his friends carried him. They couldn't get in, so they go up to the top, to the roof of Peter's mother-in-law's house, and they tear open the roof and lower the man down. Jesus heals him. And you remember what he said in order to heal him? He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Boy, that made the religious leaders that were there watching it all pretty upset. Who does this new rabbi think he is, saying that he can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Yep, exactly, exactly. And here in verse 28, by, by what authority do you do these things, Jesus? I mean, this is the temple. This is our, this is our temple, Jesus. This Passover, Jesus. <laughs> you can't just come in here and, and make a, a ruckus. This, this is Passover. Honestly, as far as the money thing goes, what Jesus had just done, this was their Black Friday. People were coming from all over. They needed animals. They needed, they needed Jewish money to, to pay the temple tax. And Jesus had put a, a big stop of them taking this increased interest to the bank. By what authority, Jesus? Well, they're about to find out, and so are you and I. The second question in verse 28, who gave you this authority, Jesus? What is their mind on? What's their mind on? Authority, power. You can tell a lot about a person by what they value as far as their concern for power. Having power, you ought to be scared when people want power. Who's in power? These, these guys are consumed by it. That word for authority in the Greek is exousia. It means a power to act. It means a power to influence, especially uh, in regard to moral things. They wanted to know who was at the top. Jesus, who has given you orders? Who did Jesus answer to? Who was this untrained, unschooled rabbi who was telling him to do what he did? In the last three years or so, Jesus' ministry in general, but especially what happened the day before. Well, Jesus is going to answer their questions, and I just love this. He's going to do it by asking them another question. If we don't pay attention, we might think that he doesn't answer it, but he does. And, and honestly, it's pure genius. I don't know if any of you like to watch like courtroom dramas or movies or, or uh, you like to listen to debates. Uh, but what Jesus does here is incredible. These guys who have consistently come to Jesus over the past three years of Christ's ministry, usually not with the motive to, to gain knowledge, but they've come to him with questions to entrap him and have him say something wrong. They're going to get an answer, and so will we, if, if we're wise enough and, and yielded to the Holy Spirit enough to comprehend it. Here's where we read about the person and work of Jesus Christ debated. In verses 29 to 32, Jesus responds, gives them an answer, but it's in the form of a question. The answer's question. Jesus says in verse 30, the baptism of John, was it from heaven 
or of men? Answer me. He says, the baptism of John, or, or John the Baptist's ministry, John the Baptist's message, his teaching, was it from heaven or was it of men? Answer me. What do you think? What do you think? Was what John the Baptist taught was the ministry uh, that he had in preparing people to recognize Jesus as God's promised Messiah? Was it from heaven, meaning was it from God? That John the Baptist was a prophet from God. He was sent to God with a message from God uh, to communicate to God's people, to, to affect a response of faith in them. Was it from heaven or was the ministry of John of men? Meaning, meaning that John was a false prophet and that his ministry, his teaching, it should have been ignored. We ought to know the answer. Scripture clearly tells us it is John the Baptist, his ministry, his preparing people to receive Christ as their promised uh, Savior. It was prophesied hundreds of years earlier. These religious leaders, scribes, experts in the law, they should have known it. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, probably the predominant Old Testament passage about John the Baptist's ministry. It says this, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, a, a, a highway for our God. Talking about John the Baptist, they should have put two and two together and seen that. In the Gospel of Luke, they didn't have it, but we do. And in the Gospel of Luke, what we often might read around Christmas time, chapter 1, verses 13 to 17, the, the priest Zechariah, he's in the temple doing his ministry, and an angel comes to Zechariah, and he says to him, your prayer has been heard, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, John the Baptist. And listen to this. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He will go before him. Who's the him? Jesus Christ. He will go before him. The answer is quandary. So that's the truth. Should be an easy answer, should I mean, Jesus really just lobbed them a softball. They should have knocked it out of the park. Simple answer. Was it of heaven? Was it from God or was it of men? But here's where it gets messy for these religious leaders. They had rejected John the Baptist and his ministry and his message. They even condoned Herod's murdering of John the Baptist when John the Baptist spoke out, preached against Herod's wicked lifestyle of immorality, something they should have done, something that they didn't do, something that these religious leaders were too scared to do, too frightened to stand for truth. I tell you what, we do not need religious leaders like that in our church, not in our churches. We don't uh, need people who are going to lead us, who are driven by fear or driven by popular opinion like these ones were. This is a major theme, major problem in this passage. Do you understand that fear is a part of life? It just is. In a fallen, sinful world, you will face fear. Fear is also a threat to our faith. It's a threat to God's glory. And so those who are to lead God's people, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the home, and so I'm going to talk to not just pastors or Sunday school teachers and deacons, I'm also talking to moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas. Those who are going to lead God's people, they better lead by example and fear no one except God himself. Fear only what God's word says. We live in a world that is so full of pragmatic people. Whatever works, do it. 
as long as we get where we want to go, the end justifies the means. That is not in Scripture. What Scripture calls for is people of principle. That's what Jesus was. That's what these religious leaders were not. Verse 31 says that they reasoned with themselves. So it's discussion time among these chief priests and scribes and elders because of the question Jesus answered them. Well, they've got two options. They can answer that, that John the Baptist's ministry and his message, that it was from heaven, that that's the correct answer. And they may have well known that. But, but what will happen if they say that John the Baptist's ministry was from God, that it was from heaven? What does it say there? They will say in verse 31, Jesus will say, well, then why then didn't you believe him? They can't win. Why didn't you respond to John the Baptist's message, religious leaders? Why did you reject his message? Why didn't you encourage God's people, the ones you lead, to respond to John's message if it was from God? Even more indicting, and pay attention to this, because this is really where Jesus answers their question by this question. If they agree that John the Baptist's ministry and message were from God, well, then what would be the logical conclusion of the one that John the Baptist prepared the way for, that his ministry was also of God, that, that Jesus, what he was saying, what he was doing, what he was teaching, he's answering their question, by what authority, Jesus? He just answered it. If it's yes to John, then it's also yes to the one that John the Baptist prepared the way for. Do they have a problem? Do they have a quandary? What if they say the opposite, that John the Baptist's ministry? No, it was of men. Well, verse 32 tells us that they came to the conclusion that this is a no-go as well. See, all of the people they led, the vast majority of them did recognize that John the Baptist was a prophet sent by God, that his ministry, his message, they were, it was from heaven. Amazing, isn't it, what Jesus does here? I told you, it was pure genius. And why wouldn't it be? It's coming from the Son of God, <laughs> omniscient. All-knowing, omnipresent, omnipotent, our Savior, the Messiah. In much the same way, why this is important for you and I 2,000 years later is because in much the same way, this is a question that God asks of every single person who's here this morning or listening. Every person who's ever walked the earth or ever will. Not, not about John the Baptist so much, but about who Jesus is and by what authority he does it things he does and says the things he says and makes the claims he makes. The question is this, who is Jesus Christ to you? And then what will you do with Jesus? You have to come up with an answer. You, you, uh, you have to. The religious leaders here did. Look at verse 33. So this is their answer. And they answered and said unto Jesus, we cannot tell. That doesn't work. You know why? This is important. Because not to say is to say. Not to act is to act. Not to choose, you've already made a choice. In fact, all of us are born already having made that choice. We have to change our choice to trust in Christ as Savior. So when you don't do it, when you say, we cannot tell, or I don't know, or I'm not going to decide, you've already decided. That's why it doesn't work. What will you do with Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Some, like these leaders, will say he's a troublemaker, that Jesus is a dissident or that he's an insurgent. I mean, that is what he was killed for uh, by human, a human perspective. He died for our sins. That's God's perspective. But, but from a human perspective, he was killed because he was causing trouble to the Jewish religious leaders, to the Roman government, supposedly. Some have concluded and, and still do today that, that 
really the answer to this question is irrelevant. It doesn't really matter much to them. Uh, or they take that option because they don't want to face the implications that a correct response would imply. But still, you still will. <laughs> You're still going to have to face those implications because there's only one answer. There's only one right answer, and that's some. Some I pray this is true of everybody here and everybody watching, but, but some say in response to what will you do with Jesus or who is Jesus to you, some say he's the son of God. He's a Messiah. He's a savior for my sins. I, I need him. He came to live uh, among us. He, he died for us. He rose from the dead for us. And one day, if we trusted in him as our savior, he is returning for us. Some will say, by faith in God's grace to us, in Jesus, he's my savior. He's my savior. I need him. I confess that need for him. I need him to take away my sins. I desire to follow him. Some will say, when you say that he is your savior, you also say, he is my Lord. He's my Lord. So what he says, I'm going to say, and, and what he commands, I'm going to do, and whenever he sends me, I'm going to go. But you have to choose an answer. Everybody does. You choose it by your heart and what you believe, but you also choose it by your life and how you live. Remember, to not choose is, is to choose. You can't respond like those here did. In the King James that I read, it says we cannot tell. Other modern English versions say something like we don't know. I prefer the King James here just because I believe that they knew. <laughs> At least they had access to that knowledge. I believe they knew. They just wouldn't say so. We cannot tell. They knew the truth. But for the past three years, their whole lives have been nothing but rejecting the truth over and over again every time. Jesus presented the gospel to them. And what looks like a bit of a riddle at first from Jesus, it's actually what we've just seen is another crystal clear call by Jesus for them to believe, to turn to him as Savior, to follow him as their Lord. Isn't our God gracious? How many times has he offered that to them? How many times has he offered it to you and I? How many times has Jesus come and presented who he is and asked us that question, who am I to you? What will you do with me? And what was their answer? We cannot tell. We don't know or we don't want to say. But their choice was made that day. And what about you? Today. Something we have to decide. There might not be another opportunity to choose tomorrow or to alter the choice you've already made. The person and work of Jesus Christ veiled. If we looked at the end of verse 33, and Jesus answered and said unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus responds to their answer to his question by saying, well, I'm not going to tell you either. Why not? Jesus, why wouldn't you just tell them who you are? Well, there's a few reasons. First of all, he, he just had, <laughs> by what he implied in that question that he responded to their question with powerful indication that, that both John the Baptist's ministry and his were from God. They had the same source. It was the Lord. It was God who sent both of them. Secondly, why didn't Jesus just say? Well, to be perfectly frank, and we have to understand this, Jesus, Jesus doesn't owe them an answer. Jesus doesn't owe us an answer. Do you know what God owes us? Justice. Because of his character, that's what he owes us. He owes us justice. Do you know what justice would mean for me and for you and for everyone? 
Apart from Christ, justice means I go to an eternity in hell because of my sins. That's what I deserve. Eternity in hell forever because of what I have done, because of my rebellion. That is justice. I'm very glad that God gives me a different form of justice, and he offers it to everyone else in the form of grace and mercy. Aren't you? That, that he didn't have to answer, but he did. He gave us the answer, capital A, and that answer is Jesus Christ. And that's available to all who will receive him, who will answer that question. Who is Jesus to you? What are you going to do with Jesus? Everyone who answers that correctly has access to his grace so that Jesus took justice for me and for you, and I don't have to spend eternity there. Instead, I can spend it in heaven with him forever. Instead, I can not only have eternal life then and there, but I can walk in newness of life even right now. That is what God offers us. Finally, one of the reasons that Jesus doesn't answer them, I believe, is what Dr. John Walvert, a chancellor professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, he, he says Mark has what is in it, uh, the secrecy motif. It's not just Mark. It's very prevalent in Mark, but we find it throughout the scriptures. We see a number of places where it seems like Jesus hides or, or he veils his identity, especially, especially to those who have consistently rejected previous opportunities to receive him. Jesus said, praying in Matthew eleven twenty five, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from wise and learned people, but you've revealed them to little children. And just a while ago in Mark 10, 16, we study where it says, Jesus said this, whosoever will not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. Well, what does Jesus mean? What is this secrecy motif? Well, it's this. It's that God reveals his plan of salvation for us in Jesus Christ. He does that to everyone. It's in his word. It's in this world. Through Christians, we are to share the gospel and help reveal it to everyone. He does that. But but hearts that receive him, hearts that receive Christ as Savior, they're childlike hearts of faith. While hearts that reject him time and time again, hearts that refuse to yield to him, refuse to follow him by repenting of sin, those hearts are so full of pride and arrogance that it hides the gospel from them. A heart's not childlike like that. It's calloused, and it becomes more and more calcified. It's hard. What's required? What's required to initially come to accept Christ as Savior? What's required to initially receive salvation by Jesus? What's required for those who, who have done that? What's required for us as Christians to conquer sin and, and to progress in sanctification? A humble response. That's what's required. When, when the crystal clear message of the gospel, who Jesus is for us, when it is presented, and it has been here this morning, I pray it always is, when, when what you do with Jesus is receive him as your savior by humbling yourself in, in a declaration of dependence on, on him alone, on the person and work of Jesus Christ for you alone. It's not what I did or what I didn't do. None of that matters. It's what you did for me. That's how I'm going to be saved. When I humbly declare that need, that you're my only hope, when I do that, he's promised to save me from my sins. Amazing. He's promised to give me eternal life. He's, he's promised to help me walk in new life. And until then, he's promised to change me and, and you from the inside out. God promises us, Proverbs 22, 4, by humility and fear of the Lord, our riches and honor and life, eternal life. 
When our response to who is Jesus to you or what will you do with Jesus, when it's a humble response of faith in his grace to us, Isaiah 57, 15 makes this incredible promise, uh, almost a, really a prophecy of the Holy Spirit. It says, God will dwell with us, with him who is of a contrite or broken and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. That's what God promises us, the Holy Spirit actually coming, God living in us, the Spirit of Christ living in us, guiding us, helping us to say no to sin and say yes to obeying God's word. When the message of the gospel is presented, when Christ our Savior is preached, like the leaders in today's passage, we've, we've got two choices. We can be in, I don't know, we cannot tell, like they were. Paul describes them in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4, these kind of people. It says, if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. They're in the process of perishing. If you haven't turned to Christ, you're born in this world in the process of perishing. It's only by turning to Christ in faith that, that you can avoid that. God has made that way. It says their minds, the God of this age has blinded who do not believe. And the second option, the right answer is this. We can be like people in 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2. Paul describes them. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And you became followers of us and of the Lord. You welcomed that message. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And it effectively works in you who believe. In you who believe. Does your pride cause the gospel and its saving message to be hidden and rejected, or will your humble response allow it to be received and believed today? There might be one here who's never trusted in Christ as Savior. You, you might have been dependent on church. I go to church. My grandparents founded this church. You might have been somebody who said, I, I'm just, look, I'm trying to do my best. If my good outweighs my bad, I hope that's the way. You might have been dependent on many different things. There's only one way to know that you have a home in heaven, that you've been saved, and that's to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you've never done that, I invite you to do so today. We're going to have a time of invitation. Tommy's going to come in a minute here. Don't wait till then. Do it right now. In prayer, confess to God. Say, I'm a sinner. I know you forgave my sins by what Jesus did on the cross, and I'm accepting that. I'm trusting that. I want to follow you, Jesus. Tell him right now in prayer. And then I'd love you if you let me know. If you have any questions about it, ask us on the back of our bulletin. It says what it means to be saved, what it means to be born again. It's on our website as well. But now I want to speak to you who have. You who have done that. See, you've got the same question. Who is Jesus to you, Christian? What will you do with Jesus, Jesus follower? You've come to him as Savior. Are you living life with him as your Lord? What he says, are you doing? Where he's telling you to go, are you going? Remember, to not answer, you've made an answer already. To not choose, you've already chosen. To not act this morning is to act. Will you choose to live your life with him as your Lord? Don't be afraid. Don't be like these religious leaders who are more concerned about popular opinion than they were about being right. Getting the answer right. We need to not be so concerned about what's the popular response, but what's a proper response in God's eyes. As Tommy comes and leads us in a hymn of invitation, however God's using his word to call you to respond today, obey him. Obey him.